So tonight, the title of the talk is It's Time to Talk Porn, A Spiritual Perspective. In one um, news article I read, the person who runs the biggest porn site operation is actually completely unknown. And he goes by the label or name of Mind Geek. And in this report, it states, the secretive owner of Pornhub, RedTube, YouPorn, and Brothers employs about 1,600 people, 1,600, 1,600 people, and received approximately $4.5 trillion visits each month in 2020. That's almost double the number of people that used Google and Facebook combined per month. And people are just going to Google often just a, a quick search on one thing and that's it, they're off. When people visit porn sites, it's not a just quick look and that's it. 4.5 trillion visits per month. That's, if that doesn't shock you, then you are far too desensitized. In another report, it said research by the British Board of Film Classification, in, and this is in 2019, said that 51% of children aged 11 to 13, 51%, had seen pornography, rising to 66% of 14 to 15-year-olds. And of course, that has since risen substantially. And another media quote, this means tens of millions of very young children are watching hardcore pornography because we as a society, frankly, without much thought or discussion, have decided to allow it. This, despite the fact that one can still be arrested for handing pornographic magazines to a child, th those two things make no sense together. I mean, that's just a, that kind of rocked me when I, when I read that. Yeah, if you go up to a 11 or a 12-year-old child and you hand them 
some hardcore pornography, you can be arrested for that. And yet in the UK, and that's going to be similar for the rest of the developed world, you have, you know, somewhere between um, 50 plus to 60 plus percent of all young children visiting hardcore pornographic sites. So these things linked together really point to the reality that we need to actually consider what's going on and question, is this or does this contribute or cause or is it going to be a cost to our happiness, to our health, including mental health and well-being? So tonight, I want to examine this or these topics from a, a personal, um, social and spiritual perspective. You know, when you look at the available statistics, some of it is just like actually completely shocking. For instance, um, in, in one study that was done, 88% of all of the most popular pornography projects violence. And of course, that's violence of males predominantly towards females. The other way around is, is uh, far less. So reading from another report, aggression largely by males and overwhelmingly against females is common in pornography. An analysis of top selling and top renting titles found 88% of the scenes showed aggression. Studies amongst adolescents find that watching pornography is linked to sexually violent behavior later in life. In a US study, people who watched violent pornography were more than six times as likely to engage in sexually aggressive behavior. You know, there is this myth floating around that, you know, with the, any form of criminalization of pornography, it shouldn't, you know, it shouldn't be there, that it's actually a victimless crime is how they often term it. But that is so shallow, such statements, so incredibly shallow. I watched a documentary, a British documentary, that completely blew my mind. In this documentary, they took four men. Three of them were 
heterosexual and one of them was homosexual. They took four men and they offered them, you know, the opportunity to participate in a documentary. And their reward was that they would bring them to meet the porn star of their dreams. And so, of course, the, the biggest porn industry is in the USA. And so they were taken to the USA. And they were brought on set and allowed to watch the making of pornography and to observe, you know, their preferred star. All of them became completely disillusioned and quite disturbed by these visits. When they went to the to see the homosexual star that the, the participant in this docu, you know, idolized, he had the shocking, he made the shocking discovery that the guy he idolized in homosexual pornography actually wasn't homosexual and didn't engage physically in homosexual acts. It was all pretended. It was all faked, you know, with the right angles and everything. And, and it was like this was one of the biggest, <laughs> you know, homosexual porn stars. And so the guy was kind of like completely, this young guy, blown out at what he encountered. They visited and then they became really shocked at how shooting takes place, what the environment is like and what people have to go through. And they learned that people had to use painkillers and take all kinds of stimulants just to get through, you know, a half a day of, of a shoot because you're put into all of these strange and abnormal positions and then you have to pretend and fake that it's all, you know, you're having an amazing time and it's just, you know, and it was just like they were, they were blown out. And then they got to visit with some women who were very famous porn stars, but then who retired from the industry. And when they began discussing what it's like behind the scenes, how abusive it often is, and how devastating and how people are forced into situations to do things that they actually don't want to do. But if they don't cooperate, then they're going to lose the, you know, the opportunity to be participant in other things and, of course, their income. And the income was quite substantial, and that's kind of one of the things they did it. But a, a huge number of these people had developed a problem of drug addiction in order to just sort of get through the scene. And there had to be frequent, well, not frequent, but it was not uncommon that they would have to go to the gynecologists and have damage repaired and stitches done and everything so that they could, you know, 
heal quickly and get back to work. And they were talking about how devastating it was on their mental health and their self-esteem and everything. And, and this is, it, it blew my mind. The, the, the guys that were sitting there listening to these women talk were all in tears. I mean, they, they cried because it was so utterly heartbreaking to, to hear the stories, you know, of the, of the insiders and really what it's like. Another reality is that all pornography fundamentally aids human trafficking of different types where people feel manipulated and forced, they lose control of their life, they become drug addicts and stuff to, you know, be able to continue with what they're doing. And one um, one writer stated, every click on a porn website on a porn website contributes to destroying lives. Even most of those who willingly entered into the porn industry speak of being coerced to do hurtful things that they never wanted to do. So, you know, when you start digging into it, you come to realize that while it's promoted as being a, a voluntary undertaking between adults of consent, you know, cons- of age, and they're, they're giving consent. It's actually not that simple. It's far more complicated. Uh, in another report, one of the most popular male porn stars of all time gave a personal account on the website, Fight the New Drug. In it, he said, I had to go to work so I could do the porn, so that I could buy the drugs to bury the pain from doing the porn, and around and around it went. You know, it's just like, uh, one of the problems is that people that consume pornography become so lost in the stimulating effect that it has on their brain and, and, and physically, and they become so obsessed with that feeling that they're not actually clearly seeing what's truly going on on the other side of that screen. We've become blinded by our own lustfulness. Um, On yet another report dealing with young people, boys and girls are exposed to pornography early and get hooked. Finding a teenager who has not been exposed to porn is nearly an impossible task. They have been taught about sex and sexuality from what they see on the internet and graphic video games. 
They play at being sexual by sending and posting naked pictures to one another and performing sex acts as early as age 11. They do all of this without the brain development to understand the long-term consequences of what they're doing. It's contributing to the destruction of a generation deficient in what it means to build intimacy. I can remember just a few years back, there was this massive outbreak in America in, in um, elementary school and middle schools. So we're talking about this is people that are, you know, anywhere from, from about nine or 10 years old up to about 13 years old. There was a massive outbreak of STDs um, in Central America and Central United States all the way over to both coasts. And they were finding that kids were picking up infections and parents had no idea what was going on and what it was. They bring them along to the doctor to be told that their, that their young child has syphilis or gonorrhea and they've got sores in the mouth, you know, and, and stuff. And it's, and then it became known that the kids were, communicating and passing all these ideas that unless it was, you know, um, penetrative vaginal sex, it wasn't really sex. And so everybody kind of got on this thing where they felt they had to participate in performing oral sex and everything behind the buildings at school. And it was just like, it was and like an epidemic. And once it became known, then things kind of changed, you know, and how they were supervising. I, I saw a report from New Zealand where it stated that many young women who view porn, they do so to learn how to engage in sexual activity and what is expected of them. And when I heard that, it just like, oh my God, you call, you think that this is learning, you know, the imitation of something that is utterly contrived, utterly artificial. And they develop this idea that they need to do this. And if they don't do it, then somehow they are going to be excluded, they are going to be ostracized, and the worst part, that somebody won't come to love them. The idea that love is tied to this activity, this superficial sexual activity, is, is really quite distressful. The change in how people, the, the availability and how people are using pornography, you know, now and what it was like 25 years ago is just like 
it's a vast difference. It's an ocean of difference. The availability of, of pornography is it's so pervasive and it's so everywhere and anybody can view anything. What ends up happening with, with young people, and when I say young people, I mean, I, I remember when I was living in Asia, uh, a friend had a computer repair shop and he was part of a, an ethnic community and um, parents would bring in their kids' computers for repair. And he would have to, you know, find out what was wrong and do the repair. And quite often it was, they'd been, you know, infected by viruses and stuff and he had to clean things up. And in the process of doing it, looking at people's browsers and their history and seeing how, you know, even in such um, quite conservative societies, You've got 11 and 12-year-old ch children watching hardcore pornography and bestiality and stuff. And, you know, little children who actually have not lived their childhood yet, not completely, and whose, you know, the frontal portion of the brain hasn't developed where people can actually think completely rationally and make really informed choices. People are getting pulled into a world that is highly stimulating and highly addictive. And what happens is, you know, the, when we talk about it biologically, a person becoming sexually aroused is meant to lead to you know, an orgasm, which is meant to be a completion of things. And so you go through this, you know, early phase of arousal and, and you know, intensify that, and then it culminates. But the way people consume pornography now is they are constantly just going from one scene or to another scene, to another scene, to another scene. And from the time they sit down, they can end up spending two, three, four, five, six hours, eight hours in front of that screen, going from one to another, to another, to another, to another. And so physiologically, it, it, it's doing things to the brain that we are not normally meant to be encountering that people are kept in a heightened state of sexual arousal. I mean, a really heightened state. And, and they, they stay in that condition for a long period of time. And what they're finding is that it's actually rewiring the brain, the pathway of, of you know, of, of the different electrical impulses and the reward centers, everything's getting rewired in a way that is not natural. It's not a natural biological 
thing that has happened. And it's ending up having a quite a, a devastating effect on, on people. One of the, and, and f- frequently what happens, and when you talk to somebody that, that actually has, a, I've counseled a number of people that have suffered from sexual addictions and how that, that it's it's complicated and they just cannot stay off the device they cannot stay off the computer or whatever that every moment that nobody's looking even when they're meant to be working they're frequently going there it's a massive phenomena that in the world now so many adults view pornography while at work you know for periods of time and and the addictive nature of it leads to different types of dysfunction one of the dysfunctions is of course sexual dysfunction you will find that the the heavier you use pornography the more difficulty you start having in personal relationships with a person that's meant to be someone that you love or you are involved with as a in a romantic relationship and that dysfunction can extend to the point of of sexual dysfunction where people can easily and instantly become aroused with pornography but actually cannot with another human being and that's like and and this is a a growing problem (laughs) but i think the most horrific effect that's not it's not immediately obvious how bad it is but i think the most horrific effect of pornographic usage is how you become trained to objectify people. You you don't look at that person that you're viewing on the screen as being a person that has intelligence, who has a personality, who has likes and dislikes. You only see them as a sexual object for your personal gratification. That has a profound effect in altering people's lives, in in actually beginning to really, really change society. And given, like we we gave that figure of, what was it, 4.5 trillion, that that one group of porn sites, gets 4.5 trillion visits a month. And and considering that this is something that people absolutely surrender to, you don't sit back objectively and go, oh, I wonder where the lighting was there, what the camera was. I wonder how long it took them to get that organized and into that position. Everybody's, they've surrendered 
to what's there. And they've just allowed the mind to go and they're deeply immersed. And in this state, there are no, you, you don't have any filters and you don't have any safeguards up. And you are being bombarded with this message that is people are sexual objects that you can use and should desire to use simply as an object for your pleasure. The objectification of, of people is one of the most, I feel, destructive effects of, of pornographic usage. And that combined with social media and how people have learned because they don't really engage with others, they, they just can blast people, say hateful things, say destructive things, act in ways that they couldn't personally to another person. You know, that, that effect of social media coupled with the influence of pornography really, really contributes to an alienation of people where they cannot actually relate in the way that people easily related, you know, a couple of decades ago and as human beings have done for thousands of years. So, you know, you're getting amongst the, these users this um, growing and massive difficulty that they have in, in relationships. I mean, it, it's kind of like when, when a, a partner in a relationship suddenly discovers that the partner is using pornography, that has multiple layers of problems tied up in it. Quite often, women will feel that they are inadequate, that they are not enough. They will develop guilt complexes. They will start agreeing to and going along with more kinky and weird stuff, not because they like it, but because they don't want to lose their partner. I mean, it, it, the effect that it's having on, on countless relationships is, is it's, it's mind-blowing. It's absolutely mind-blowing. But it's like sex has become the sacred cow. The 60s sexual revolution was actually really bad, where people rebelled against moral boundaries. And the idea was promoted that you should never feel any form of guilt or you shouldn't feel any shame. You should be able to do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it. And there should be nothing attached to it. I mean, I, I recall seeing an interview of, of Suzanne Barr. Oh, no, it was something I wrote, the, the comedian, where she was promoting the idea 
that you should be able to have sex with anyone, anywhere, anytime and not be hung up. You should be able to even come to orgasm with a lamppost if you want to. Then, not too long after that, I saw another interview and they asked her, what for you is a good day? And her response was, any day that I don't contemplate suicide, I regard as a good day. And it's kind of like, well, I mean, is, is there any connection here? And obviously there, there is, not in a simple or a simplistic way. We're talking about deep behavioral and consciousness changes that people don't seem to be able to really put things together. There's a an, this English guy, Louis Thoreau, and he does he does a quite interesting documentaries. I've watched a number of them because I like to look at people's psychology and their states of consciousness. And he did one on on sex, on sex workers. And we're not talking about the old institutionalized brothels and things. We're talking about people operating out of their homes. One woman was married and her husband agreed to let her go and become a sex worker. And she was probably in her early 50s. And, you know, she would pose and advertise and and be contacted and go out to have sex and come back and discuss it with her husband. And we learned that much earlier on, she had lived a very repressed kind of life. Now she had just gone the other way. Then there was a young mother with two children and she would engage in sex work to take care of the kids. She was now a single mom. Her husband had left. And there was another young woman that was doing it. And this guy was really interesting because he would really, in this kind of like dorky sort of simple way, he would ask questions that were actually quite in your face, but kind of like a curious child. And so people are kind of, you know, they let their guard down. And what blew my mind was all of these people actually revealed how unhappy their life was and how they had a history of different kinds of either trauma or, or, or things that they had gone through, different, one being very repressed, you know, growing up in a very strict, religious kind of family and everything. And so people were kind of trying to compensate. And the other thing that came out was how people so much wanted to be loved. And then this idea of equating sexual activity with actual love was a really big underlying thing. 
And it's shocking how frequently women, and especially young women, agree to go along with things, even if they feel uncomfortable, because they are so much driven by a desire to be loved. And they feel that to have the warm embrace and the sweet words and everything, that this is kind of like the price that you have to pay for it. And that is, to me, is absolutely heartbreaking. There is a monumental difference between lust and love. This word, and we're going to use it quite a bit, lust doesn't, in in Vedic terms, from the point of view of yogic philosophy, does not refer solely to sexual desire. It actually... They say that, that, you know, intense sexual desire is a symptom of a deeper underlying thing. And that underlying thing is what they categorize. And there's no real English word for it. So it's often translated as lust. In Sanskrit, it's karma, not, not karma, you know action and reaction, but karma. And this karma is intense self-centeredness and intense desire that comes from this self-centeredness. And they point out that there is a massive distinction between what is actually love and what is lust. They describe that lust is a perversion of love. It occurs and is driven by the desire for love, but it manifests in this self-centered form as what is called lust. So I'll read a brief quote here. This is from a book called the um, Chaitanya Charitam Rita. And it uh, states, lust and love have different characteristics, just as iron and gold have different natures. So there's, that was the beginning in, in this conversation uh, about, you know, on or centered around this topic. So uh, I think we've already talked enough about the, the personal and the social, and we could really dig into it. And if you really dig into it, and if you spent a time, time with people who actually really open up about sexual addiction, about wa- working in the sex industry, I mean, truly, what's underneath? Once the, the brave exterior, yeah, I'm having fantastic time. I'm making all the choices. I have all this money. But when you start peeling away the layers and then they start talking about what's really going on inside, you know, I think we've covered enough of this. The personal and the social issues and costs are, are tremendous. But what I want to do is, is look at it from the spiritual perspective. 
If we are going to talk about the spiritual perspective, then we have to understand we're going to be using a different paradigm. That there are two ways of seeing things. There are two states of consciousness, spiritual and broadly material. The perspective of the great enlightened spiritual teachers was that human life provides the most extraordinary opportunity for total enlightenment and to become free of all suffering and unhappiness. And the purpose of human life was to undertake that journey. That was the purpose of it. The purpose of materialism, um, well, materialism in general, is founded on the illusion that this body that I'm currently wearing in my mind is me. The spiritual perspective is, no, it's not. This is an outer garment, that you are an eternal spiritual being residing within. But you can become deeply influenced by the garment and by the workings of the mind. And you can assume, you know, this very deep, material consciousness where you adopt pure hedonism. Pure hedonism is the idea that the purpose of life is to stimulate and enjoy the senses, the bodily senses, and the mind will be driven into a frenzy of enjoyment and to try and stay in that condition for as long and as frequently as possible. The reality is that even when you try to go down that path, just like the, the quote I read from that guy that was one of the most well-known homosexual porn stars, and he talked about how unhappy he was and that whole world, and how he had to constantly self-medicate with drugs just to make it so he could continue. But there was an addiction to what was being done, even though it was producing an outcome that was <clears throat> deeply unhappy. So when a person you know, takes on materialistic consciousness, when they become illusioned about who they really are, or there's no thought about their spiritual identity, there will always be, they will be plagued with feelings of emptiness and loneliness, which they try to cover up and, and hide from. And when a person gets into sexual activity, then as an escape, from the unhappiness and is what they think will be a solution to their you know, desire to find complete happiness. What in fact they're doing is 
deeply reinforcing the illusion that the body is who I am. And of course, this leads to great unhappiness. The more that you are absorbed in this illusion of the body as being the self, the more you are disconnected from your actual spiritual identity, the more you will suffer. That is just a fundamental reality. And so when people engage in, in sexual activity, it really requires that people become deeply absorbed in bodily consciousness which means that you are giving up you know your actual identity as being an eternal spiritual being so as i remember uh, as i mentioned you know this that from the spiritual perspective lust you know most people think of lust as being sex or sexual activity or desire but this was not how the transcendentalists saw things at all. Um, any form of intense self-centeredness from the spiritual perspe- perspective is, and it's epitomized by lust, which is you know total self-absorption, self-centeredness, false self. Lust is therefore considered by the transcendentalists as being the enemy of enlightenment and the perpetuation of suffering. Now, there are people that are so-called spiritualists that like to advertise that you can have all the sex that you want as often and as frequently as you want and still be God-realized. But it's kind of like, no, it doesn't actually work that way. (laughs) I'm sorry, it it just doesn't. Because one road is a road to being free from the bodily conception, and the other road is a road of utter and complete absorption and the illusion of bodily and bodily conception. So... What happens when there is an, you know, in, in, in the ancient yogic teachings, they fully embrace the reality of, you know, human sexuality, but they really strongly advised that it needed to be controlled and regulated, that unabated sexual activity increases the control of lust over the spiritual being, increases the illusion of the spiritual being. So from their perspective, hedonism was actually the great opponent of enlightenment. They they don't and cannot coexist. That's kind of scary when you think about it. And if people understood this principle, like I've been to a number of what they call yoga festivals here. And, um, you know, it's just, 
Yoga is not a form of gymnastics or physical exercise. It is the union of the individual soul, the spiritual being with the supreme soul in an ecstatic ocean of love and of spiritual blissfulness. The idea of being scantily dressed and trying to entice people's eyes and minds to feel desirable, to, you know, just get lost in a world of intoxicants and sexual activity is not yoga and is not spiritual. This is hedonistic and completely material. That journey is is different. The spiritual journey is different from that. It's not that the ancient sages were, you know, puritanical religionists. Most people's, you know, difficulty with human sexuality and, and morality has been shaped by elements of more puritanical type Christianity. And I'm not saying that real Christianity is like that. But the idea of, you know, you, you, you turn this way and you've got eternal damnation, eternal, not just a rap on the knuckles or getting sent to your room. We're talking about eternal condemnation. And you take the other side and it's, you know, full freedom. And so they have these pictures of a person with like a devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other shoulder and both are whispering in the ear, come this way, come this way, you know, and the person's sort of like fighting to find their way. This is not an actual understanding of, of what spiritual life actually is. So, you know, we have this, I mentioned earlier, this, the 60s sexual revolution and the influence that that has had on society. It's like sexual activity and sexualization of everything has become like some worshipable thing that's absolutely untouchable that nobody can speak against. And it's become, for me, so bad that you have adults seeking to deeply influence children from a young age. And and I, I, it blew my mind. I was doing some work in, in the Philippines with a, uh, a lay organization from the Catholic Church. And they showed me that a, a syllabus that was going to be introduced to the Philippines and adopted in all schools, all schools, and it was coming from the United Nations. And the focus of the syllabus was the transformation of of people to become increasingly more sexually focused. It was like from from kinder level, children under the guise of of high health and hygiene 
were given little dolls with fully developed sexual organs and pubic hair, and they were taught how to wash them and how to do. What's this? Everybody say vagina and vagina. Yes, and what's it? Penis, penis. You know. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing to little children? And it laid out, it laid out clear objectives of how they wanted to sexualize the population. And it began with, with a statement. We are unique sexual beings. And that was like foundational to this whole thing that was being introduced. And it was kind of like we weren't human beings. We weren't spiritual beings within human bodies or material bodies. We were sexual beings. And so this became, you know, teaching people how to embrace their sexuality. And of course, you've got all this other literature, you know, coming out of the United Nations also where the fundamental idea of if you can make a population more sexually active, they're far more open to the use of contraception, which then automatically limits population. So you've got this whole group of people that are really on the, you know, limiting human population, the weight of human population on the planet, and who want to use sexuality as a way to do that. But it's kind of like, yeah, and so what effect is this going to have on, on everybody? One of the big problems with uh, the cultivation of, of sexual desire is the more you engage, it's like putting an accelerant on fire, like petrol. If you put petrol on the fire, it doesn't put the fire out. It makes the fire hotter and stronger. And as it burns hotter, then there is a need for more accelerant. You know, you put more fuel on the fire, which then in turn burns hotter and brighter. But there is no actual satisfaction that is to be experienced. So I'm going to read a, a, a quote um, this, this quote that I, I'll read you is from the Bhagavad Gita. And it, it's part of something that I will read, but I, I just want to read this verse. Thus, a person's pure consciousness, so we're talking about the consciousness of the soul, is covered by his eternal enemy in the form of lust which is never satisfied and which burns like fire. So it's like, oh my God, there's consequences here. You know, if, I, if I'm going to go down this route, it's going to burn like fire and it is going to never be satisfied. So just pointing those words out in, in the Sanskrit, Vairina, and it's described as being the eternal enemy of the living being. Kama, Kama Rupa, Rupena, 
So in, in the form of lust, the eternal enemy of the living being is never satisfied and burns like fire. Um, there is now a vast array of psychological studies and information and stuff that have been done related to this whole field. And reading from one, having a heightened appetite for erotic material has been associated with anxiety disorders. In addition, this hypersexual disorder may also cause mood disorders and even substance abuse challenges. There have also been links drawn to excessive pornographic consumption and erectile dysfunction, plus other sexual dysfunctions. Science shows that men who watch pornography begin to find their partners less attractive and less desirable. Infidelity increases with porn consumption and relationships deteriorate. If the partner knows about the porn habit, her self-esteem is damaged and the dynamic especially sexually, can be harmed permanently. So these are, these are scientific facts. And so, you know, we're, we're faced with this dilemma. The problem is that not enough people are hearing any counter-argument. There is a lack of clarity, and yet everybody's been, what the hell they say, fed to the lions. You've been just thrown out there and, and encouraged to become like everybody else, hedonistic and materialistic. And it has a price on you as a person, you the person within. And it's so damaging for interpersonal relationships and things. So this discussion on lust, um, of course, there's lots and lots of texts, spiritual texts dealing with this because it's such a massive subject because we are so deeply affected by it in so many different ways. And the need for clarity and understanding to be able to make really informed decisions and choices is so important. So just reading from a, a group of texts from the uh, Bhagavad Gita. Arjuna said, O descendant of Vrishni, by what is one impelled to sinful acts, even unwillingly, as if engaged by force? So this is just like, wow, this is a heavy, heavy question. Impelled is kind of, you know, it's the opposite of propelled. Propelled is like pushed. Impelled, it's like you mean drawn in. So, you know, this is the, the effect. What, what is it that draws us like this? As if engaged by force. What is it? Then Krishna responds, Sri Bhagavan said, 
It is lust only, Arjuna, which is born of contact with the material modes of passion and later transformed into wrath and which is the all-devouring sinful enemy of this world. So here, um, Krishna just lays out what it is that's the actual issue and and problem. Um, We'll talk about some of the things contained here shortly. Then he continues, as fire is covered by smoke, as a mirror is covered by dust, or as the embryo is covered by the womb, the living entity is similarly covered by different degrees of this lust. So here we clearly understand that this talking of lust is not just sexual desire and sexual expression. It's the underlying driver, which is this, I'm going to say obsessive self-concern, false self-concern. And it describes how a person can be influenced or covered by this to different degrees. And they use three examples, and I'll just explain them so you understand. Just uh, This was explained to Arjuna, so he has this perspective. When you see a, a pregnant woman, you know, a heavily pregnant woman, all you can see is a bump in the stomach. You cannot make out the embryo, the child within. You can't see which way it's lying. You can't see what it's doing. You can't see movement. All you can see is this bump. And so this was likened to one level of covering where the living being, the actual spiritual being becomes so covered, you can barely perceive the actual spiritual person within. Then another example was a fire covered by smoke. You know, when somebody is starting to try to light a fire and the wood's not very um, dry, you know, it's a bit green, and it starts emitting all this smoke. And when you look down at it, you just see all the smoke rising. And occasionally, you might see a little tip of a flame licking through the smoke. So in this condition, a person can be utterly covered by lust, but occasionally their true spiritual nature is perceivable. And then in the third example, you had a a mirror covered by dust. So if you're standing in front of a dust-covered mirror, yeah, you can see the form of your body quite reasonably clearly you can make out everything but there is some some light distortion due to the layer of dust and so in a similar manner a person an eternal spiritual being can be covered by different degrees of the of lust and the effect that it is having is to either light, somewhat cover all the way to almost totally covering the eternal spiritual being. And all all that you're aware of is the externals. Then continuing these verses. Thus, a person's pure consciousness 
is covered by his eternal enemy in the form of lust, which is never satisfied and which burns like fire. So that was the one we read earlier. The senses, the mind, and the intelligence are the sitting places of this lust, which veils the real knowledge of the living entity and bewilders him. So it's when, when one begins to focus on the, the senses and the demands of the senses and the demands of the mind, and when their intelligence is clouded, because of the influence of lust, it says it veils the real knowledge of the living entity and bewilders him. Bewilders mean you cannot see with any clarity any spiritual reality or truth. Then finally, therefore, O Arjuna, best of the Bharatas, in the very beginning curb this great symbol of sin, lust, by regulating the senses and slay this destroyer of knowledge and self-realization. I mean, well, it doesn't get any clearer than that. That the more a person is being absorbed in self-centered, you know, material consciousness, then their actual spiritual knowledge is being destroyed. And so is the hope for actual self-realization. So one of the things that was mentioned there was that how lust transforms into wrath, which is you know great anger. So a lot of people don't understand this connection. Like for instance. There was this move, you know, beginning about 25, 30 years ago, where film boards wanted to promote and allow, you know, sexual expression in movies, but they wanted to condemn all violence and not have violence in the movies. And people don't understand that these two things are actually really, really connected in, in profound ways. So reading from another um, scientific report, as a porn habit escalates into an addiction, consequences unravel even further for couples and families. Anger increases and the addict will cycle through stages of porn consumption addiction. Within these stages are times of increased anger and aloofness. And this can become confusing for partners of porn addicts and especially for their children. So this, this connection is, is not really understood. But it is explained by the great um, sages that the more a person becomes absorbed in lustfulness, which is, you know, intense selfishness and selfish desire to, to enjoy fundamentally is what it's really all about. It's going to have one of two effects. Either you're going to get everything that you want and it will not fulfill you. And as a result of that, you will feel increasingly frustrated. Or 
you will be prevented from getting what you want that you think is going to make you happy and fulfill you and you will be frustrated. And that frustration begins to manifest as anger. They understood that another person doesn't make you angry. If you have anger residing within your heart, then it doesn't matter. There'll be different pretexts and reasons. Somebody is going to touch and suddenly that anger is going to burst forth. Anger is not caused by someone else. It is your response to them. And that doesn't always have to be that way. So reading another verse from the Bhagavad Gita, talking about this, well, complex process. And, and it's sort of like, you know, the first principle is a principle understood in all advertising. If I can get you to contemplate on the goodies, you will desire to have them. So here we go, 5,000 years ago, this statement, while contemplating the objects of the senses, a person develops attachment for them. And from such attachment, lust develops. And from lust, anger arises. So, you know, there was this much more elevated view that, you know, the, it was founded on the understanding that the purpose of life was to become self-realized, to, to attain an enlightenment. And so in this verse I'll read, it says, there are three gates leading to this hell, lust, anger, and greed. Every sane person should give these up, for they lead to the degradation of the soul. So, I mean, this is a massive subject. I'm just touching it on, on it here. And it's fundamentally, if your life is going to be immersed in, if you are going to be controlled by lust, anger, and greed, your life is going to become hellish. Not just immediately, but on an ongoing basis. And it's described as becoming like a hell. So in another verse from the Bhagavat Purana, speaking on the subject, one who accepts the material sense objects as desirable certainly becomes attached to them. From such attachment, lust arises, and this lust creates quarrel amongst men, meaning all people. So when we look at the subject of, of um, you know, pornography that we've described, yes, there are going, there are ongoing and will get increasingly worse catastrophic effects and influences on individuals, on society. But for me, the biggest problem lies in the erosion of any form of spiritual vision or understanding, which leads to the uh, 
ongoing and almost limitless suffering for the living being. And if one wants to become free from the material condition and experience true spiritual love and and limitless happiness, then one cannot, cannot be embracing that which is destroying them. So in conclusion, you know, a little bit of a reminder that we are eternal spiritual beings. Lust strips us of the experience of that reality. It removes it. So closing with a some sagely advice also from the Bhagavad Purana. And this is a guidance for life. You know, we all need to establish voluntarily and thoughtfully what are, what are the guideposts? What's going to keep me on, on my path? I am making choices, knowingly or unknowingly. And if I make intelligent choices, I can produce brilliant outcomes. My life can be wonderful. And if I don't, if I just surrender to all these influences, then I have to accept the consequences and it could be profoundly unhappy for me. So here it states nonviolence, truthfulness, honesty, the desire for happiness and the welfare of all others, the desire for happiness and welfare of all others, to have that concern for all others, and freedom from lust, anger, and greed constitute the duties for all members of society. Bit of a journey we went on tonight. I know that was quite long, but it's a really important subject. And it's an opportunity to look at things in a deeper sort of way and not to be just superficially overwhelmed and overcome by, you know, the material condition. So I hope you have found the discussion to be enlightening and enlivening. And I super encourage you to really try in your life to make the choice to walk on the path of enlightenment, of spiritual realization. If you do that, you will achieve, you will experience the perfection that you actually seek and desire. Thank you very, very much. And of course, we know the prime method to bring about the personal transformation is in this process of meditation upon the spiritual sounds. So I will chant the <clears throat> Haribol Nitai Gora mantra. 
Thank you all very, very much for joining us. Look forward to seeing you again next week. Hari Bol.